Okay, what's up, Abundant Life? How are you guys doing today? Good to see you here. Good, good to be back here. I was out at the Sandy campus last week, and I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, it's always good to be back here because you are my favorite campus by far, and, uh, and this is my favorite service by far, and so it's great to see all of you here. We are in a series that we started a couple of weeks ago that we have called Facing Giants, and in this series, we're looking at the life of David and talking about how to face the giants that all of us will inevitably face in our life, and many of you are facing giants, I know, right now. And so we started out by talking about how giants are something that are bigger than you're able to handle by yourself. How many of you are dealing with something in your life right now that if you're really honest, this is bigger than I can deal with by myself, okay? Okay, good. A few of you, good, good, good. And uh, so you are facing these giants, and you need other people to help you. You obviously need God to help you as well. And so in this series, we've talked about several things that are particular to all giants. They're real. They're intimidating. They are there in the evening when you go to bed. They're there when you wake up. When you wake up, that's the first thing you're thinking about. It's the first thing you see is this giant, you know, figuratively speaking, not your spouse. And, uh, and, and, and so... <laughs> Although that could be too, I suppose. And so you, you see it when you wake up, and, uh, and, and God wants us to face these things. He wants us not to run from these giants, but to face them. And the reason he wants us to face them is because they are gateways to growth. They help you grow and to mature and to develop, and it's through that God's shaping you. But even more than that, God uses these as opportunities for you and me to watch him go to work and do things in our lives that we otherwise would miss. And so as you and I face these giants, there are all kinds of, of, of steps and principles that we can apply from God's word to help us face them. And uh, just to mention some that we've talked about in the first two weeks, First off, be faithful in the little things of life, whatever little responsibilities, because not every giant is a problem to be overcome. It could be an opportunity to be seized, but you have to be faithful in the smaller things of life before you're willing to take on or able to take on the bigger things of life or the bigger challenges that come into your life. And so be faithful in the little things and then initiate action. At some point, you've got to run toward the thing that you fear. You have to run toward the thing that you've been running away from. If you're going to effectively deal with it, you have to run toward it, so you have to initiate action. I encourage you not to be deterred by the discouragers because there will always be people who will say, you don't have what it takes to face this giant. There are people who will step into your life and say, it can't be done, and if it could be done, it can't be done by you. And so just realize that anyone who has never successfully faced a giant will tell you it can't be done. And so don't be deterred by the discouragers. Be sure to look back over your shoulder once in a while and look back into your past and see where God has helped you overcome giants in the past. Look at the past victories that you've had. Go back and, and recollect some of those places where God has helped you have victory in the past so that can encourage your heart for the future. And then reject the human solutions of man. Uh, the world has all kinds of solutions for you and me to deal with the giants we face. 
And many times those worldly solutions aren't the best solutions. It's not what God wants you to do. In fact, many times it's the exact opposite of what God wants you to do. So often we have to reject the human solutions that the world offers to us. And then I would encourage you to verbalize the victory. Verbalize the victory before you ever get into the battle. Say, God, I know that, that you're with me, you're around me, you're for me, you're fighting for me. I, I acknowledge that you are going to give me the victory. And you verbalize the victory before the battle ever begins. Now today, as we continue in this series, we're going to be, uh, begin looking at some of the specific giants that David faced that I believe are particular to every person that's listening. At one time or another, you will have or you are facing this giant right now. Today we're talking about the giant of insignificance. When you look back through history... You read a lot of stories and hear a lot of situations where people seem to be overlooked or they were underestimated for various reasons. For example, back in 1879, rather, there was a child born to a very poor Jewish family. And this child was actually um, just dealt with lots of inferiority con con conflicts all of his life because of the anti-Semitism that he experienced. And then he, was, he just seemed to be slow. And so his parents actually took him to a doctor to have him tested to see if he was normal. And so they took him and had him tested and all this stuff. And, and then he, as he grew, he, he applied for a university and, and he failed. He didn't get in. So he tried again the next year and he succeeded. And then he went on actually to become a doctor. And this person, who was he? He's the guy who formulated the theory of relativity. Yeah, Albert Einstein. And yet there's somebody who was like, I think he's slow. And, and then you come through history, you'll see all kinds of stories like this. In 1962, a major recording company said, we don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. That was Decca Records, okay, and what they said to the Beatles, all right? Uh, someone said he can't sing and he can't act, he can dance a little, okay? That was the president of MGM Studios in assessing Fred Astaire, and so when you go through history, all the time you'll find people who seem to be underestimated and are considered to not have what it takes to do the job, and so people will overlook them. But they get, go on to accomplish great things and do great things for mankind and, and human beings and all kinds of things like that. When I look at stories like that, I think that's the way God works. That's the way he works. If you look through the pages of Scripture... Over and over and over again, God is always choosing people that seem to be the, the, the least likely candidate to do what has to be done. And David is just like this. He's, he's one that could easily be overlooked. And so what we want to do today is to go back and, and take a look at where David got his beginning. Because his story didn't start with him facing Goliath. It started before that, actually, with Saul, who was the king of Israel. And Saul started out as a good king. He was obedient to God, and he walked humbly before God. But as time went on, he began to get self-absorbed and self-obsessed and was disobedient to God. And finally, it got to the place where God says, you know what? I've rejected him. I've rejected him as king, and there's going to be a new king over Israel. 
And so God comes to Samuel, and to the prophet, and says, Samuel, I want you to go and appoint and anoint the next king of Israel, the one that I'm going to choose. And Samuel, he really does not care to take this job on because there's a, there's a sitting king already, Saul. And he's, he knows this is not good. This is not safe. I don't, I don't want to do this. In, in fact, you know, Saul says, I'm not going to do this. Anymore. How can I do this? Because Saul, he'll kill me. He'll just flat out kill me if he finds out what I'm doing. And so God sends him on this covert mission. And, uh, but before he goes, you know, Samuel, he's just, you know, he's procrastinating and he's, he's not doing it. And, and the Bible says, uh, what God speaks to Samuel and says, Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I rejected him as king? I want you to fill your horn with oil and just be on your way. And I'm sending you to Jesse in the town of Bethlehem, and it's there that you're going to find the next king. Now, Bethlehem is like this. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's outside of Jerusalem, tiny little um, obscure village. It'd be like going to Estacada to try to find a president of the United States. And, and so God sends him on this, on this undercover, okay, Colton. Okay, maybe Colton. It was, he goes to Colton. I'm sure Estacada has lots of president candidates there. And, and, so, and so he sends him to, to, um, to Bethlehem to go find this king. And so uh, it's a small little village. Everybody knows everybody. And so you know in villages like that, and, and everybody knows everybody's business. There's no way, you know, Samuel's going to come in unnoticed. And so he sends him on this mission. He's got just pulling this cow behind him. And he's, he's going, I'm going here to sacrifice to God. And while he's there, he says, go find Jesse and have him come join the sacrifices, and that's where you're going to find the next king. And so we'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Okay, this is his older brother. This is David's older brother. He saw Eliab, and he thought to himself, well, surely, I mean, right out of the gate, surely the Lord's anointed stands right here before the Lord. Uh, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's so important right there. God just doesn't look at the stuff that we look at to determine the significance of a person. God says, I look at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And, but Samuel said, well, the Lord has not chosen him either. And then Jesse had Shema pass by. And, but Samuel said to him, no, no, the Lord hasn't chosen you either. And then Jesse had seven of his sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's out tending sheep. And Samuel says, well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he, had, he sent and he had him brought in, and he was ruddy and had a fine appearance and handsome features, kind of like a Scott Miller type guy probably, and, and <laughs> had him come in. And then the Lord said to him, you know, rise up and anoint him. He, he's the one. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in, in power. Have you ever been in a position where you were the last one chosen? Anybody here ever been like the last one chosen? Isn't that horrible? I mean, I hate that. When I, when I think about people being overlooked and being the last one chosen, 
it makes my mind go back to the eighth grade when I was in, you know, in phys ed, physical education. And you know how it works. You know, you, everybody lines up, and then you pick the two jocks, and they become the captains, and then the captains each choose until there's nobody left. And if you're the last one, what do you feel like? You know, you feel like, well, what am I? You know, nobody wants me. Well, I'm the guy who was like the last one chosen. Because yeah, I told you, I, I was 155 when I got married, okay? At 19, I was 155 pounds. And in the eighth grade, I was probably 130 pounds. And so, you know, nobody, I, I, and I wasn't that horrible of an athlete. It's just like, I mean, he's so skinny. He's such a runt. Nobody wants him on his team. And so he's the last one chosen. And so I know what it feels like to be the last one chosen. It's just no fun. It's not enjoyable. And, you, and, and I think that's probably where a lot of this self-image stuff starts, you know. You, you remember back when some teacher said something degrading to you or you were the last one chosen. And you think you would get over it, but you carry it into adulthood and, and you still feel insignificant. And then as you grow older, the world and the culture we live in just has a way of reinforcing that idea that you're insignificant and you don't matter and all that stuff. It just has a way of reinforcing all that stuff. Well, from this passage, we can clearly see that God's standard for significance is not based upon what the world says you have to have in order to be significant. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. David was an unlikely candidate to be king. He really was. He came from an undistinguished family. His, mother, his grandmother was an immigrant. Uh, included in his lineage was a woman who was almost executed for adultery and prostitution. And David was in the wrong birth order. He was the last one in the family. And the reason that's important is because back in David's time, the son would, would hopefully have a brother eventually so that he could quit tending sheep and go on and do something else. And so when the older brother, you know, would have a, a younger brother to come along, he could move on. The younger brother took over tending the sheep. And then when that brother grew and another brother came along, then he would have to tend the sheep. And so this went on and on and on until it finally got to David. So David's the last one. And he's the youngest, which means, guess what he's going to do the rest of his life? He's going to be a shepherd. The lowest job. He's going to be a shepherd and tend a bunch of sheep. And, and so he's the least likely candidate to be chosen as, as being the king. And so this, this, story, this story has this beginning, and it, and it tells us about the value and the worth of a person and the significance of a person. And what we see in this story are two contrasting value systems about what's significant and what's not, what makes a person significant or not. And they're so different from one another. In conventional wisdom, David should have been the last one picked because in the world's eyes, he was insignificant. He, he was the youngest. At this time in his life, he's probably about 15 years old. And so physically, he's nowhere near as strong as his brothers are, and he has no leadership experience whatsoever. I mean, zero leadership experience, and he's just been tending sheep. And God says he's the one. It's just, it's just weird. And so he's facing this giant of insignificance. He knew what it was like to be overlooked and to be chosen last. I'll bet you there are people in this room right now and people who are maybe watching online, you're battling the giant of insignificance and maybe don't even know it. Maybe you didn't know what to call it and now maybe you do. 
because you have similar kinds of thoughts. What difference do I make? I mean, I feel like I'm overlooked all the time. It's like, who cares what I think? What difference do I make in life? I mean, to whom do I matter? If I were gone, who would even care? Who would even notice? And, and people go through life every day, and they have these kinds of feelings, and they wonder, what difference do I even make in life? You know, am I important to anyone? And so the giant of insignificant comes along, and it lies to you. It lies to you, and it has many different kinds of lies that it whispers in your ear. Let me share with you three of them. The giant of insignificance comes along, and what it tells you is that your significance is based on your appearance. And you see that all the time. You hear it all the time, that, that if you're going to be significant, then you've got to be tall, or you've got to be good-looking, or you've got to be handsome, or you've got to have a full head of hair, which I'm so happy to have read that, that really women think guys with bald heads are really the better-looking and sexier guys. And so... <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm sure there's lots of wisdom that goes into that, that article and study. But, yeah, can I, can I hear from all my ball friends, my man right here, right over here? Yes, yes. And so, you know, surveys show over and over, though, that first impressions mean everything. And so if you're going to get the job, it depends on what you look like and how tall you are and, and, and what you look like and what you're wearing and all this stuff. The cosmetic industry today is just crazy. The money that's spent in the cosmetic industry, I, I went and looked up this past week that uh, in the cosmetic industry brings in over $55 billion annually. $55 billion annually. And I mean, I can understand that. I mean, is there anybody here, guys, girls, you know, you, you buy cosmetic stuff because you want to look good, right? And, and a lot of you are doing a pretty good job. I can tell you you've invested a lot of money, you know, to, to, <laughs> to look good. I, I remember when my wife and I were down in, in the Florida Keys about three years ago, and we got suckered into this. We're walking, we're literally, we're literally walking down the street, and, and these, these guys, they pull us into their shop to, to tell us about this miracle cream that'll get rid of the bags under your eyes. And we got suckered into that. We got suckered into that and ended up dumping some money into buying this mess. It's, and... Uh, and, and it's, it, maybe, it's working, maybe it's working for her, but it ain't doing much for me, okay? And, and we do that. We buy this stuff because, like, I want to look good. You know, I want to look young because appearance is so important because, you know, I, I pastored this church, and I've got to look good. In fact, just, just walking in, somebody uh, passed me and said, oh, I never get to see you up close. I'm thinking, well, that's probably a good thing. And, and so... Because I'm thinking, he's thinking, he looks old, you know, or something like that. But anyway, you know, we spend all this money on cosmetics and, and all this stuff. A study was done of people who go to the health club and work out, and they asked them the question, do you go for appearance reasons or, or to, to be healthy? And what do you think most people said? Yeah, they, they go for appearance reasons. Now, obviously not you. You don't do that. I mean, those of you who do go to a health club, you, I'm sure you don't go for for appearance reasons, you go to be healthy. It's everybody else out there. Okay, and so anyway, Eliab, the oldest son, he's the oldest, and he's the first one to come before Samuel, and he should have been the first one to come before Samuel because he's the oldest, and he's the one in line. Really, if he's going to be king, it would be him. And so then God explains to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, he says, listen, uh, do not consider his appearance and don't consider his height because I rejected him. I mean, I love this verse. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I used to teach this verse and preach this verse to teenagers all the time. 
because they were always wrestling with their appearance. Now that I'm working with adults most of the time, I never have to deal with that issue. Because <laughs> what I found is that us adults, we deal with the same thing. We deal with the same thing. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't care for your physical body. I think you should. I, I really do. I think you should uh, take you know, care about what you eat, and I think you should exercise. I think that's important. And the reason I think it's important is because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and your body is a gift that God's given to you to, to do what he's called you to do on this earth. And so I think it's just reasonable that we should take care of it. But don't ever make the mistake of finding your significance in your appearance. Because that's the, that's the lie of the giant of insignificance. Because so many people you know, are, are just, everything is all about their appearance today. And, and they're not finding their significance there. And they wonder what's going on. It's because God's value system is so different. You're never going to look good enough to, to be significant. Okay? You never are. Just turn to the person next to you and say, you're never going to look good enough. Okay, the Bible teaches that God's emphasis is on the inside, not the outside. Okay, here's the second lie that the giant of insignificance says to us, that significance is based on achievement. That significance is based on achievement. That if you're going to be significant in the eyes of the world, then it's all about what you achieve. Okay, and again, men and women both wrestle with this. And it's hard for us not to believe that because these, these are believable lies because, again, that's what the world says, that it depends on what you achieve. That's how significant you are. And you know that's true because whenever you meet somebody for the first time, it's not long into the conversation, especially, I think, with us guys. I'm not sure if it's the same with women or not, but, but with us guys, it's that way. And you're not five minutes into the conversation before you ask what? What do you do? What do you do? And, you know, if somebody says, well, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, you know, or, or whatever, it's like, ooh, wow, you know, must be a pretty cool person, you know, pretty sharp, pretty talented, you know, somebody to be admired or whatever. And, or if somebody says, well, I, you know, I'm a plumber or, you know, I, you know, I drive a truck or, or whatever, it's like, oh, okay. And, and, and so we make these value judgments about people based upon what they do as if, you know, what you do uh, determines your significance or not. And, and it doesn't. So it's not based on achievement. And again, I'm not saying don't achieve things. Okay, I think you should. I think, again, God wired you and he wired me to be the best that we could be. I mean, God's a creative God. He's always inventing. He's always creating. He's always developing. He's always moving. I think he created you and me to be that way. And I think it's not a good use of a person's life to not live to the highest potential. I think you should. I have three degrees and two certifications. But again, it's not where, at least it shouldn't be, where I get my significance. But I think it's important to be the best you can be at whatever you do and, and to keep growing. But don't make the mistake of believing the lie that it's in my achievements that I find my significance. Because you can lose all of that. God does not look at me and say, oh, he's, he's so significant because he pastors He's a pastor to begin with, and he pastors a, a pretty big church. In two weeks, I'm going to be with a group of pastors, and, and probably 80% of them are pastors of churches much bigger than this one. You know, there'll be a few pastors there that have churches maybe around 1,000. Some of them are going to be five. Some are going to be 10. It's going to be 20,000 people. And it's going to be a group of about 150 people. 
And so those of us who pastor smaller churches are going to stick out like a sore thumb. You know, and it'd be very easy to be threatened by that because, you know, well, you know, I guess they're more significant than me because their church is bigger. I mean, you can transfer it to you and to your situation. But significance is not based on, on achievement. And so, and so all these sons are being paraded by Samuel, and he's, he's getting almost frustrated with the whole thing. And in 1 Samuel 16, he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest. And circle that word youngest. Still the youngest, Jesse answered. But he's out tending sheep. In other words, yeah, I've got one more, but <laughs> you don't want him because he's out tending sheep. He's the youngest. The word that's used here, uh, haketan, is the, is the Hebrew word, haketan. It basically means he's the runt of the litter. He's the youngest. He's the baby. He's the runt. You don't want him. He's not what you're looking for. Doesn't have the experience. Doesn't have the track record. Yet, that's who God chose. Some of you are thinking, what do I have to offer? Well, you don't have to have much, which is a good thing, because God can take your little and do a lot with it. But so many times we think it's what we've achieved that gives us significance in the eyes. Of, it does in the eyes of people, but it doesn't in the eyes of God. And then here's the third lie, is that significance is based on approval. That significance is based on approval, whether or not I'm approved by people. I mean, my goodness, people do crazy things these days just to please people, don't they? They do. People do crazy things just to gain the acceptance of other people, just to be approved by other people. Sociologists tell us that in every group, there's like an inner ring of people, whether you're kids on a, on a playground in grade school or whether you're in junior high school or whether you're in high school or in college or maybe even at the workplace, there's an inner ring of people and people want to fit in to that ring. They want to be on the inner circle. And if they don't fit into that, they feel like, well, I'm insignificant. I don't really matter. And we sometimes feel that way if we don't fit on the inside. And there's just this, this drive to be accepted and to be pleased by people. Well, David's family is no exception. Because believe me, Elijah, um, uh, Eliab and uh, Shema and Abinadab, they're not jumping up and down at the fact that David's going to be king. In fact, they're really jealous and they're envious and it's so apparent when David takes food to, the, to his brothers out on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17, when Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the rest of the men, he burned with anger at him. And he asked, you know, why have you come down here, David? Why are you even here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep that you're watching? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You only came down here to watch the battle. And he's so jealous and he's so, he's so envious because Eliab has already been passed over once for being the king. And now here's David showing up again to, to, uh, to show him up again. And so he's, he's just jealous. Fortunately, David had enough internal security that he didn't let his brother's discouragement stop him. And so he, he, he proceeds and, and, and continues on to do what God has called him to do. Now, again, seeking the approval of people, it's a big issue in, in our culture today. I see it happen all the time. I see, all the time, I see children trying to gain the approval of their parents. I mean, adult children trying to gain the approval of their parents. I see parents trying to gain the approval 
of their children. And that's why they can't parent them. And you'll see spouses trying to gain the approval of a spouse. I see pastors trying to gain the approval of their congregation. And whenever you need people, you can't lead people. Whenever you need people, you can't really be what God's called you to be because you're so busy trying to gain the approval of everybody else. And so the, the giant of insignificance says, you know, if you're going to be significant, then you've got to be approved of by the right people. And that's just not true. And so we learn from this story that whenever you're tempted to believe the giant of insignificance, this is what you and I have to understand. God bases our significance not on external, but on, inter- on the internal. Not on the external, not what you look like, not what you've achieved, not who you hang out with. Those things do not give you significance in God's eyes. What gives you significance in God's eyes is who you are. It's because it's the intern, it's what's going on on the inside. In chapter 16, again, verse 7b, it says, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but where does God look? He looks on your heart. He looks on your heart. And that's why you and I have to be so careful that we never let our talent or our charisma take us to places where our character can't keep us. And that's what Saul wrestled with, and that's what David's going to wrestle with later on in the story. And so ultimately, it's all about God. Your significance comes from God. And as long as you're trying to find it anywhere else by any, per, any other person, you're never going to find it. it. It comes from God and what he says about us. And so what does God say about us? He says a lot about us, but let me give you three things and then we're going to share communion together because I want you to think about these things during communion today. God says, first off, that I am valuable. I am valuable. Some of you don't believe that. You really don't. You, you, you don't like you. You don't like who you are. And you don't see a lot of value in you. And in fact, I, I would challenge you right now, everybody just in your own breath, in your own inner voice, just, just whisper, I am valuable. I'm valuable. And some of you are having a hard time dealing with that. And so your value comes from your relationship with God. None of these other things. Your value is because of who you are, not what you do. It's who you are. And who are you? Who are you? Well, you are created in the image of God. I mean, stop and think about that. That has profound implications, that you're created in the image of God. It goes all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1:27. God created a man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. I mean, look at the person sitting next to you. Just take a look at them right now. That person is created in the image of God. Yeah, they are. They're created in the image of God in the imago Dei, the image of God. And if you and I could really grasp that, I mean, if you could really grasp the, the, the implications of the fact that you're created in God's image, the creator of the universe, you're created in his image, it would change what you think about you and it would change what you think about people. And it would change how you treat yourself or how you disrespect yourself and how you disrespect other people. It would just change if you recognize that every single person is created in the image of God. David, as he grew older, and he, he penned so many of the beautiful psalms, one of the most beautiful was Psalm 139, when he wrote, and you gotta go read this whole psalm today sometime, but he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Turn to the person sitting next to you now, even if they're a stranger, and look at them and say, you know, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Just tell them, you're fearfully, wonderfully made. You are. You are. I, I challenge you, go home today sometime and, and stand before a mirror, okay? Keep your clothes on. Stand before a mirror. <laughs> stand before a mirror. And, and, and you say, God, I thank you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of you need to hear that. You really do. You really do. Because when you can understand that and embrace that and believe that, you'll start treating yourself differently. In Hebrews, the writer asks the question, why are people even important to you, God? Why are they even important? Why do you take care of human beings? And then he answers the question. It's because you made them a little lower than the angels and you crowned them with glory and honor. You see, you're distinct from every other part of God's creation, every other part. That's what gives you significance. Not only that, but I'm lovable. I am lovable. The, the number of people walking around on this earth today who don't believe they're lovable is, is almost incomprehensible. The more I work with people, the more I know they struggle with this issue. It's not just teenagers. It's not just college kids. It's, it's, it's adults. The more I work with people, the more I realize that people think they're not lovable. Uh, years ago, I did a series called The Seven Wonders of the Spiritual World. I want to come back and do that. One of these, these, it was many years ago that I did that. And one of those wonders is God loves me. It, that's a wonder, is, is that God loves me. It's, it's not enough that you know that God loves the world. Okay, anybody in here saying, well, God loves the world. What you need to be able to walk out of here saying is, God loves me. God loves me. And some of you have a hard time with that because, honestly, you're not sure God loves you. In, in fact, maybe you even think God dislikes you or God is angry with you or God is mad at you or something. In John chapter 15, John says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what Jesus did for you. In Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until you get your act together. He loves you just like you are. Now, some of you might be thinking, not after what I've done. Not after what I've done. There, there's, honestly, there's no way that God could love me. In fact, some of you could even be here in church today trying to regain God's love or, or trying to get back in his good graces or get back on his good side. And you're hoping that being here will maybe change his disposition toward you. He loves you, period. That's, that's what makes this wonder so amazing. It's the, the first wonder is he knows you. The second wonder is he loves you. Because it's one thing to know somebody. It's another thing to know them and still love them. And God knows you. He knows you so very well. He knows everything you've ever, ever done. knows everything you're going to do. And he still loves you. And so he, that's where you find your significance. You're, you're lovable in God's eyes. David was not always a lovable person. 
He wasn't perfect. He was a great king, but he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, we're going to talk more about his sin with Bathsheba later on and then his trying to cover it up by having her husband put to death, murdered, basically, and, and tried to cover that all up. And then the prophet Nathan came and, and pointed out his error. And, and then in Psalm 51, he writes this amazing psalm where, again, he speaks about this love. In Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. According to your unfailing love, your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, God loves you not because you've measured up. You don't measure up. You just don't. You don't. Jesus is what makes it possible for you to be righteous in the eyes of God. He sees you through the blood of Jesus. And so because he does, God actually dances over you. He delights over you. I love Zephaniah 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. It was a really good day for me when I realized that, that God actually sings over me with joy. That he loves me so much. He, one version says he dances over me with joy. Because again, I, I, I know me pretty well. Not as well as God does. But I know me pretty well. I, I love uh, Max Lucado's thought on this. He says, if God had a wallet, your picture would be in it. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. And as I was sitting at my desk today, every time I opened my computer, this is what I see. And I thought, what if God had a computer? I wonder if my face would be on it, you know, because we put things on our computer that we love. And so this is my wife and my three grandchildren. And so every time I, I open this up, I see this, and, I, and I'm just reminded of how much I love, you know, these people. And obviously there's more people. I just can't get them all on the computer screen. And so anyway, so I, I got this idea. I wonder if when God opens up his computer, if he had a computer, it's like, ah. Oh, there's George. <laughs> I love George. I love him, you know. Well, you know what? If God had a computer, a MacBook, your face would be there when he opens it up. I'm valuable because I'm, I'm made in God's image. I'm, I'm lovable because Jesus gave his life for me. And then here's the third thing. I'm capable. I'm capable. To validate God's choice, he had Samuel anoint David with oil and, 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 and for the responsibility of being a king. You see that in, in verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in great power. This anointing with oil was symbolic of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that empowered David to do what he did. When you and I choose to follow Jesus Christ, what does God give to you and me? His Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, so that we can do what God's called us to do. And a lot of you think, I'm not capable. I could never lead a life group. I could never teach a class. I could never pray in public. I could never tell somebody about Jesus. I could never invite somebody to church. I could never take a mission trip. I can't do any of that stuff. That's just for pastor types and really spiritual people. No, you're, you're capable. You can do a whole lot more than you give yourself credit for. You're very capable. I love this verse in Ephesians 2.10. You know, God made you, he values you, he loves you, he saved you, and he trusts you to do what he's given you to do. 
And Ephesians 2.10 points to this. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. We're his masterpiece. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned a long time for us ago to do. You're his masterpiece. You're his workmanship. That word, the Greek word, is poema. What word do you think we get from poema? Poem. Poem. You're, you're God's poem. And it means an epic poem. It's like the Iliad or the Odyssey. You're his epic poem. You are a work of art. Okay? I know people maybe closest to you are thinking, no, no, no. He's a piece of work. That's what he is. <laughs> Regardless of what they think. You are a work of art. I want you to turn to somebody right now and say, look up and say, you are a work of art. You're a work of art. You're a work of art. That's what you are. That's what you are. You'll never find your significance from the approval of people. You'll never find your significance in what you've achieved. You'll never find your significance in your appearance. All that stuff can be taken away from you by the end of this day. You'll find your significance in God. And what he says about you, that you're lovable, that you're capable, that you're all these things. And so, so, so much more. I'm going to ask if you'd bow your head. And if you'd close your eyes. As we close out today, we're going to share communion together. So I don't want you to leave. We're going to share communion. And I want you to focus on what God says about you. And just listen in to, to the Holy Spirit. And ask God to speak to you and say, God, what do you think about me? And listen to what he has to say. And as you share communion, remember, it's just a beautiful picture and reminder of what God thinks about you. He loves you so much that he gave his son to die for you, to redeem you, so you could spend eternity with your father. Before we do that, let's pray. And if you've never accepted Jesus, wow, that's, that's, the, that's the step that you need to take today. And so if that's your desire today, I'm going to ask if you would repeat this prayer after me. And if you've made the decision to follow Jesus, if you also would, would pray. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, today I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life and into my heart. I surrender myself before you and I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. I choose to follow you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.